Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Now, good morning, rabbit holers. Hello, Kat. Hello. How's everyone? All good, thank you. Yeah, okay. All oh, right. We feel something, a burden. Well, do you share? Just problems with um, a piece of shopper. Right. I'm trying to crack the Chopin waltzes. Is this on your fancy newish piano? Yes, it is, as a matter of fact. I wasn't saying this so I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying as you bring it up. Uh, <laughs> yes, but I'm, I'm doing this thing where I'm revisiting the repertoire I used to play when I was a teenager, when I was probably technically at my best, but musically unformed, if I can put it uh-huh. that way. And there's just some try to, I have to solve the problems in a different way now because I'm older and because my fingers are doing slightly different things it's just a rather thorny problem i'm rather enjoying solving it but it's tricky are you all confident you can crack this one yeah i think so it's just a question of slightly here's the thing in your 60s you won't know about this cat but charles you will shortly know about this (laughs) is that you realize it's not just that why can't you teach an old dog new tricks because you have to unlearn the old tricks first that makes sense so that seems as though i've Got into certain, actually rather bad habits with playing the piano, which I'm trying to cure myself of now. But, mm. you know, that's how empty my life is. But now you've got this really lovely instrument. Do you play it a lot? Are you yeah. playing every day when you're at home? Yeah, a lot, actually. It's one of my real pleasures at the moment, actually, is playing. And does Dickie enjoy it? He does. Although mm. I also have a, a digital piano as well, which I can play on headphones when he's, I sense that his delight is perhaps in <laughs> <laughs> No, I miss playing music. So I played several music instruments as a child, but then I stopped as a teenager and I haven't gone back. What was your best one? I played the flute. Um, Started when I was about seven or something like that. Played for about five or six years. Did you choose it or did somebody choose it for you? No, I chose it. That's what I wanted to play. And I did really, really enjoy it. So Norway, pretty much every school has a kind of marching band, orchestra, brass bandy sort of thing. So that Mm. was a really big really big thing and I used to play the flute but I should get back to it but oh. I don't know yeah maybe I should we could form a rabbit hole detectives troupe because we have a yes. dance story now, yes I'm going to be talking about that later we can play and just I used to play the violin Did and you? the bagpipes yeah uh, I knew about the bagpipes yeah. about the violin. so it would be a fairly complicated <laughs> trio wouldn't it <laughs> excellent I think we should do it I think there's so many ways that this Greek could write for us go. of course because as you mentioned he was Scottish <gasps> so he wasn't really he wasn't no I'm going to have to 
Do him as one of my topics. Well, I might just prove you wrong. To well, unpick okay, his Scottish yeah. 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 Game on. Okay. Fine. Fine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you. All right. I'm going <laughs> to show you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there we go. I wonder if we should just go straight into it because there's so much counting on, on these topics. So maybe we should just mm. cut the small talk and just go straight to it. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. So I think I'm due to start. And I'm going to be talking about something which I don't think you knew anything about, which is the law of Yanta. Law of what? Yanta. I don't know anything about it. Never heard of it? No. No. So it's a very Scandinavian thing. And it's uh, essentially a set of rules, uh, 10 rules or almost commandments, that were written about in the 1930s by an author called Axel Sandemusa. He wrote a book called A Fugitive Crosses His Tracks, which was about a man called Espen Arnaka, who was a sort of sailor and, a, well, essentially he was a, a murderer. So he was convicted of murder. Um, uh, he'd gone to Canada, I think. And he tells a story about how he ended up being a murderer. And he blames it all on the town he grew up in and the society he grew up in. He was actually Danish, Norwegian. So it's something that's very specific to both Danish and Norwegian societies. It's very familiar to most Scandinavians, really. And it's essentially what these Scandinavians do to kind of bring people down a little bit and put them in their place. Mm. So he essentially said that there were these 10 rules that were unspoken. And it became a huge, I mean, the, the book in itself is not that good but these concepts the fact that he was the first person to really say well this is a huge part of Scandinavian society so I'm not going to read all of them but essentially they're all along the same lines number one being that you're not to think that you are anything special that you're not as good as everybody else that you're not better than everyone else and that you know more than anybody else does that you're not more important than anybody else I mean going on to number nine is that you're not to think anyone cares about you specifically (laughs) So as you can it's imagine, <laughs> making a point from many directions, but it's the same point. Yeah. It's, it's the same point. Poppy syndrome. Yes, yeah. exactly yes. that. Exactly <laughs> that. Now this became known as the Yanta Law, the Yanta Commandments, and it got so obviously. Apart from the sort of literary success of the book, it was that whole concept that Scandinavian societies are really very much suppressing individuality. And the point he's making in the book is that this had such a negative effect on this particular character. And it sort of presses down the individual um, and in Espen Arnaka's case, it drove him to jealousy and drove him to murder, essentially, because the fact that he felt that his individuality was so suppressed. Now, this whole term, yanta, is in the dictionaries as well. So it's become a term in itself. From the 1960s, it was established as a principle. And this idea that the non-conformity was a threat to society. And I think... Growing up, we always learnt about this as a principle of Scandinavian society. I think it's something that, from the outside, unless you've actually lived there, you don't realise that this is actually quite quite real. I wish you say that because I think that's a feature of a lot of the people I know from the Nordic countries. Yeah. Is there's this sense that you wouldn't want to get above yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's Canadian too. Oh, really? Yeah, I always think of Canada and Scandinavia as very similar. The outlook and that is very much part of it. Don't get too big for your boots. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think people obviously have spent an awful lot of time studying this phenomenon and studying it in Scandinavia. And it does seem to be something that is 
quite prevalent in society. So I've got a very strong community feel. So similar, the whole tall poppy syndrome, which I'm going to get back to in, in a moment. That's also quite prevalent in Australia and New Zealand, which again have that sort of community aspect to them. Scotland too. There's yeah. a saying yes. in Scotland, if someone gets a bit above themselves, you go, I kent your father. I knew your father. Japanese as well got a similar but they've got an expression the nail that sticks up is hammered down Ooh. so again mm-hmm. very similar and you can see that sense in the sort of Japanese community I suppose as well culture but the sort of positive aspects of it so usually the negative aspects are very much what's sort of brought out from this but the positives are things like emphasising caring for the community and communal activities and this idea that everyone is the same. And that is very much something that I've grown up with, certainly in Scandinavia, this idea that you're meant to be the same. You're not really meant to stand out very much at all. And so when people have done something, they've got successes in, in sports or in... Or in academic life. Yeah, it is, but you're not celebrated in the same way. I suppose there's a thing between... Your achievements you should be personally modest and humble. Yeah. Mm. No matter how exalted your achievements, right? Yeah. And I think I might have touched on this in a previous episode, but it still makes me laugh. It's Will Arnett, the Canadian comedian who has his own podcast, The Smartless, which is very good. But he was talking on it about how he called his mother and said, did you see I was nominated for two Emmys? And she went, yes, I did. And your sister's moving house on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I could see that happening in Norway quite easily. Um, But interestingly, some other people have studied this. I've read an academic article about this also suggesting that Scandinavian minimalist design, even IKEA, originated Mm. with the same sort of ideas and the same concept, this whole community, equality, all of that. Except the founder of IKEA in his political views, would not match up with that, no. I don't think. He's very much an elitist. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting how those people are treated as well, and even people who've you know, made a lot of money or whatever, they're not celebrated for that as such. And there's a lot of opportunities in media to bring them down if they do something wrong. So people like Tul Hayadal I've talked about before, you know, yeah. as soon as they fail, there's, there's quite a, a sort of incentive, I think, to really bring them down to everybody else's level so they don't really stand out. In Holland, there's a place called the Bechenhof in Amsterdam, which is a beautiful square of very modest houses and merchants would live there. But when you open the door of those modest houses, behind them, they're palaces. Yes. And I think that's a Calvinist thing, perhaps, this notion that you would not display wealth or prestige because that would be considered so yeah. how come this didn't take root in the United States? <laughs> well, it's quite a different yes. culture. You can see that, really. But do you want to know my favourite fact on this one? Yes. So that relates to the tall poppy syndrome, yes. which is a, a, exactly the same thing. And now, I didn't know where that came from. Do you know where that I thought it was tell? Australian. Way through, well, it is quite common. Yeah, it's, it's seen as something very prevalent in Australia. But the term itself comes from a Roman story and a Roman tyrant. And one of these early historians, so Livy who wrote in the 3rd century BC. And he wrote a story about one of these earliest Roman kingdoms, a Roman tyrant called King Tarquin the Proud. Now, his son, Sextus, was infiltrating the leadership of the neighbouring city, but he didn't really know what to do next. So he went to his father. Father said nothing, but he went into the garden and cut off the heads of the tallest poppies with his sword. And 
not really explaining what he meant, but his son then interpreted that as having to go out and destroying all the leading aristocrats and all the sort of powerful figures in that town. And he did this and then successfully won the city for Rome. And then his father said it was just a horticultural gesture. <laughs> just a gardening, <laughs> God's sake. Just doing the pruning, though. Exactly. <laughs> Tarquin, is that Tarquin, Tarquin is superbus. Superbus. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So similar stories. Herodotus actually wrote similar stories, metaphors, using wheat instead of poppies. So it's obviously a concept that goes back there. You sort of cut these people down to It's an interesting thing, win. isn't it? Because you, you know, people talk about having a success in a field of sort of putting your head over the parapet, don't yes. you? Yes. Whereas you do become a target, perhaps, yes. when you do that. Yeah, yeah precisely. But it's interesting how certain societies and communities value that levelness. I love that about Scandinavia, the Nordic countries. I love the fact that it is a coherent side, but I imagine that there might be frustrations in it too sometimes, I don't know. Yeah, I think it is quite difficult in many ways, and certainly if you want to try and excel, when I went to school, for example, they've changed it now, but you weren't allowed to do streaming. It was illegal. So you weren't allowed to separate by ability academically yeah. at all because that would lead to both differential treatment. Unfair. Yeah, unfair. So everyone's the same, but you have 30 random children put together. Well, your question then is, what do you want to do? Do you want to run with the fastest in the pack or the slowest in the pack? Yeah, and well, that's an interesting question. Yeah, exactly. It's very so, good so. school time training for Kat to sit with us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we exactly. Bring you, down. <laughs> you know when Kat goes on these tours for her book? Yeah. The thing she gets at the end of her book signings is generally ladies coming up to you and saying, I don't know how you put up with those two. <laughs> I, think you can, I think you're managing quite well. <laughs> There's been a few comments, yes. <laughs> but they've been positive, so that's fine. So there we go. So that's my, now you know what not to do when you go to Scandinavia. Yes. Yonta. Yanta. How would you spell Yanta. it, Kat? J-A-N-T-E. So it's a name, as a fictional name of a, a town yeah. in Denmark. And does it actually mean, I know, obviously it's a fictional name, does it mean anything? No, it's just it's just, it's just the name, name of that yeah. town. Yeah. It's fascinating. Actually, I think yeah. it might have something to do with Protestant Christianity as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, There's possibly. something Lutheran, Calvinistic about that. Sounds yeah. like it, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I remember some story from North America, from the United States, and there was, it's a sort of picture of what we've been talking about what you've been telling us about cat and it's about a fishing boat and they catch european crabs on one side of the atlantic and american ones on the other side and the difference with the two pots of crabs is you don't need to put a lid on the european ones because they hold them down yeah one if one tries to if crabs yeah, tries to explain they will pull it down the american one you had to put a lid on because they're all trying to get to the top there we go there you are Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So, next yeah. topic for today. Yes. That's you, and you're talking about luggage, Richard. <laughs> luggage. I love this. It's so <laughs> mad, this program. <laughs> <laughs> luggage. Yeah. Well, it's not been around that long in a way. What we think of as luggage, the word is derived from the word to lug, and it means a sort of heavy piece of baggage that requires a bit of effort to cart around. We've always needed to have something to carry our bits and bobs in. The pocket, for example, was a 16th century invention. So before that, you needed a purse or something like that. If you had anything worth carrying, not everybody did, of course. The backpack. The rucksack. Of course, the rucksack. The Romans had to, we were talking about Romans ago, the loculus, which was a little sort of purse or something like that. The budget, 
Do you know why the budget is called the budget? No. Well, it actually refers to the case it comes in, because a budget was originally a leather pouch. That's what it means. And so over the years, that's evolved into the sort of attaché case that mm. the Chancellor holds, that historic thing. The budget itself actually comes from the receptacle in which the papers were placed. In the Middle Ages, of course, on pilgrimage, people would move around a bit. It tended to be... Most people stayed put most of the time, of course, so you didn't really need any luggage. And the people who were able to do the travelling usually had people to assist them with that. So if you were a high-status person, you would load what you needed to take with you in trunks and somebody would have to you know, follow you around and do all that. It sort of started getting to be a thing with the arrival of mass forms of transport, if you see what I mean. And at first, it was really shipping. People needed sea chests to go on sea voyages. And so what you first started to see was sea trunks. Indeed, if you had seafaring ancestors, most of them would have had a sea trunk. What are the dimensions of a sea trunk? Well, they're quite big. They tended to be have iron bases. They needed to be strong. And they tended to have domed tops so that water would not pool on them, but drop off and help to keep the contents dry. Now, that created a problem when people started shifting around in numbers because try stacking items with domed tops. It's a rather difficult thing to do. So what began to happen with mass transit was the development of the trunk, the flat-topped trunk. One person in particular was very significant in the development of the flat-topped trunk, and that was Monsieur Louis Vuitton. Monsieur Louis Vuitton was born in 1821, I think it was, in Jura. And he made his way when he was a teenager. His mum was a hat maker. Dad did a bit of farming. They both died. And when he was a teenager, he spent two years walking to Paris. And there he became apprentice to a man called Maréchal, and he learned the elements of the trade. He turned out to be pretty good at making boxes and trunks, that kind of thing. But he realised that a flat topped trunk would be much more suitable. So he developed all sorts of various forms of technology to do that and rose through the ranks of his trade, as it were, and ended up becoming a sort of master maker of trunks and opened a shop and everything. And he was appointed, actually, packer to the Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III, because he was so good. And a packer was not someone who merely packed clothes. He did a beautiful job of that. But it was also what they packed it in. So he created the trunks that you could pack things in. And this sort of became more and more a thing. And then, of course, Louis Vuitton, the luggage began to become quite prized because it was so well made. And then he used a distinctive sort of canvas that things were covered with originally over a wooden frame. He used poplar to do that. Elements of that still survive in the Louis Vuitton trunk and various items of luggage you get today. Eventually, he developed the kind of leather thing. And also, the real innovation, this is a really interesting thing, was the monogram. So that LV that you mm. see on Louis Vuitton caused a huge scandal for us because people, namely his clientele, the only people who could afford his luggage were people who were people of prestige. Why would they have somebody else's initials on their trunks? It was a breakthrough in branding, in mm. fact, in the end, that Louis Vuitton put his initials on his luggage. And because they were seen as so wonderful and so beautifully made and so prestigious, in the end, people thought, well, we'd rather have his initials on our trunks than ours. I can remember once checking into an aeroplane, flying to Los Angeles in the 1980s, in my pop star days. And we were checked on British Airways first class with Joan Collins. <laughs> and Joan Collins arrived with, I think, 20 pieces of Louis Vuitton <laughs> luggage, told you everything you needed to know. 
He wasn't, of course, the only innovator. There were all sorts of other people. Globetrotter was happening, of course. Globetrotter is still a brand that you can buy now. But it was always luggage sort of catching up with the needs of the people who were doing the travelling. And as that population began to grow, people got richer, tourism took off, train travel took off, luggage adapted to suit the suitcase. Suitcases are a recent invention too. A trunk provided for all your needs. And some of the trunks that Louis Vuitton made were so splendid, and still are, that they were effectively wardrobes. That you could open them up and you could have your suits hanging there. You could have... Famously makes some wonderful bespoke trunks too. And he made one for Pierre Boulez, the avant-garde composer, with a special compartment just for his Walkman. So, you know. <laughs> they also make the presentation boxes for the Ballon d'Or, Globetrotter came along too. It was originally a firm actually founded in Dresden, but established in London. And they used to kind of vulcanise. What they were trying to do was to make luggage that was light to make it more portable. Because guess what? In the olden days, people had luggage, but they didn't have to carry it themselves. Mm. All of a sudden, when mass transit happened, people were travelling who didn't have people to carry their luggage. So therefore, it needed to be light. Another big factor was happening in America. Because what was happening in America immigration. Lots of people coming to America carrying their own stuff. So they needed to have stuff to carry in that was fit for purpose. More specific than that, very interesting fellow indeed called Godillot, Alexis Godillot, who was a Frenchman, and he invented the attaché case. He was a maker of bags and things, but he noticed that the attachés attached to the various foreign ministries in Paris all needed to have or could have used a particular kind of thing that they could carry around their papers in. And so he invented the attaché case for them. The briefcase was, of course, invented for lawyers who needed briefs. And that was intended to be opened from the top. So you could look in and you could see and you could pick out the brief you needed to be. The Gladstone bag, named after Gladstone, of course. All these things were luggage that was invented to meet new travellers travelling in new sorts of ways. And of course, the big thing that happened next was air travel. Mm. And that changed everything more because weight then became much more of an important thing. From the 1930s, air travel became a thing. In the 1940s, they started charging extra for heavy bags. And then, of course, well, to fast forward to the 1980s, there was a pilot on Northwestern called Plath, and Mr. Plath got fed up with all the palaver of going, checking bags in and out. So he thought it would be great if you could just have a bag that you could just take into the plane and not put in the hold. And so that was the invention of the cabin bag. Mm. But you're lugging around a cabin bag, a bit of a pain, that, isn't it? So it takes a little bit back to the skatey thing. One of the reasons when we were talking the other week about the evolution of skates, I thought, well, maybe it was sort of skis underneath carts that was there. You could see that that kind of made things move more quickly and more smoothly, mm. more readily over ice or snow. He put little sort of skis on a suitcase and started pulling it around the airport because he was fed up with having to lug it around all the time. And that eventually evolved into an upright bag with two little wheels, the rollerboard, the rollerboard, which is a huge... I think if you go to any station now or any airport now, what a mixed blessing the rollerboard is, don't you think? How many times have you tripped over somebody else's? Or they could... A hazard, yeah. But what's happening, of course, is that more people are travelling, they're having to carry their own luggage, and they don't want to check it into a hold. They could be through airports more quickly and more easily. And then in the 1990s, the extendable handle was invented too, and we all see the effect of that. The spinner... Here's the thing. Oh, yes. How many do you want two wheels on your bags or do you want four? For manoeuvrability and also for 
convenience of size, then you want four wheels on. Yeah. But all of a sudden, airlines are charging you, right, to put stuff in the hold. So, oh, you want to go into a cabin baggage again, but oh, four wheels takes up more space. So, oh, maybe two wheels is better after all. All the time, the materials that stuff's constructed from, very, very light now, very, very strong. There's a Samsonite advert where the chief executive of the company, actually of Britain, jumps up and down on a Samsonite bag. And they've got one with an elephant jumps up and down on a Samsonite <laughs> bag too. To show you strength, but also lightness, Samsonite also have an integrated system so you can buy items of luggage that kind of slot together. All these things are designed to make our lives easier and simpler. What is the next innovation on bagging? Well, we don't know, do we? I have in this torrent of information... A favourite fact. Mm. Mm, go for it. Do you remember the inventor of the attaché case in Paris in the 1850s? Monsieur Godillot. Do you know what else he invented in 1862? This will surprise you. It'll knock your socks off, in fact. No clue. The left and the right of a pair of shoes. Until 1862, shoes were the same whether you were on the left or the right. It wasn't until Godio in 1862 that shoemakers differentiated between a left foot and a right foot really? in a pair of shoes. Yeah. And doesn't that seem completely mad? But that, yeah. is, that is the case. By 1870, it had been taken up widely. And in France today, he made so many army boots that the French for clodhopper is a Godio. Very good. Well, so very interesting. That is good. Excellent. It's so complete. I haven't got a single... I couldn't interject. <laughs> I know. Where, where do we go from? Silent submission. <laughs> from here. I still think that the rucksack, is, it was underrepresented in that story, but I'm well, not going to... Well, it It had a walk-on part. Yeah. Well, you see, I think you covered it pretty thoroughly in yeah, previous, enough, in previous yeah. episodes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and also, it's not, it's not quite what I meant. No. The rucksack Fair is enough. to carry stuff for you as you hike through a wood for whatever, right? It's not but, baggage. No, I think yeah, I think, I think luggage is stuff that goes yeah. on a yeah, train or a boat the or a plane. Yeah, backpacking culture, that's where it becomes in, isn't it? Because then, then that's a combination of that sort of travel and carrying things. Well, I, see, I wonder if backpackers perhaps become in later life people who wheel their own bags around because they mm. want to have their stuff with yeah. them, but they're not going to wear a backpack anymore. I, I certainly remember I used to travel an enormous amount on the train between divorced parents when I was young. And there were porters everywhere. Yeah. You know, we'd arrive at Liverpool Street Station, there were porters, everyone was using them. Because, of course, the suitcases weren't usable for most people. I mean, most women and children could not lug one around. They were late invention suitcases. Again, yes. it, was a, it was a small trunk. Yeah. You could put a suit and a shirt in, perhaps, with a handle on that you could carry yourself. Yes. Because, and also, you know, high-status people would have, porters would take their stuff at the, yeah. at the station room around. It's a mixed blessing, the democratisation of travel, I think. Yes, definitely. Great for people who like to travel, but um, the more people who travel, the more stress it places on all sorts of things. I can't bear... I've got, I think there should be a, I think there should be a compulsory ban on, you know, those four wheeled cases that are now the size of a small mm. block of flats. That is tricky, I yeah. agree. Too big. And then people do try and bring them on the plane as hand... Yeah. And they block up all the overhead. I think there should be a chute on the air bridge <laughs> for people who try to bring oversized bags. They do have sometimes you not, Have you not flown them. Ryanair? You clearly haven't flown Ryanair. 
I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, of budget airlines. <laughs> this happens. I mean, they are so because they make money on it. Yeah. So they are religiously they weigh and they'll measure everything. So the yeah. thing is, I grew up as a student traveling back and forth on the cheapest possible flights, and you bring, you know, exactly how much you're allowed to bring and how big, how much you can stuff into your Do you suitcase. Remember that pop star who was so angry he just dressed. He, oh, he refused yes. to do this. He was dressed in sort of three layers of clothes yes. and then he got heat stroke on the plane. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just put all your clothes up. You Excellent. fancy pop star type. It is a thing, isn't it, about... I travel very light and that's because I toured in my 20s mm. and I've got it down to fine art. I also travel a lot, I've got it down to fine mm. art. Now, I did. I was a foreign reporter for oh, NBC yeah. and you just know exactly what you're not going to need. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Now, we're going to have to... I've been dying to hear more about this since you told us last week, well, the Charles. Of seats. Yes. So, come on. Sound. Well, I've outed myself. Morris dancing, please, Charles. I've gone against the rule. Yeah, with Morris dancing, I've gone against the rule of Sir Thomas Beecham, you know, which is Britain's first international conductor, who said, try everything once except incest and Morris dancing. And you've gone against... Uh, well, I haven't. <laughs> Just one of those I've broken the rule on. And uh, I like Sir Thomas Beecham, an interesting man, co-founded the London Philharmonic, you know, worked with Malcolm Sargent on that and born next to... He was a man of wealth. His family made Beecham's pills laxatives and he was born next to their factory. But the point being that he set the tone, really, because... Morris dancing has had a checkered history and it has often been the victim of mirth and derision, as I can see from my two rabbit hole compatriots here. What I was most interested in, I thought Morris dancing went way, way back, probably into pagan roots, etc. No, there's a possibility that it has a European, Indo sort of route somewhere. But what you're thinking about of people with bells on their trousers and wearing white and bashing sticks together, which is what the English like to do in their folk dancing, with a sort of rhythmic step and choreography. That is quite recent. And the first time we really find it is in the mid-15th century, which is a surprise to me. I thought it would be way back into the Saxons or something. Uh, we find in 1448, the Goldsmiths Company, you often talk about the livery, they paid seven shillings to Morris dancers for some entertainment. Henry VII was a fan, a big fan, which is interesting. Out of all the Tudors, I always think Henry VII is a rather stern and forbidding figure who's keen on extracting money from his people. But he loved all of the jollity of Morris dancing. And there's a reference in early Tudor texts to Moriscos and we don't know if the word, it could come from a corruption of Moorish. It could be from the French word Morisque, which is a dance. But anyway, Henry VIII loved it. He had it uh, performed, a, a big Morris dance and Shrovetide banquet of 1509, quite soon after he had inherited the throne from his father. And we see it all the way through, really, the Tudor period. I hadn't quite appreciated the rugged tastes of Elizabeth I. She loved a good bit of bear baiting, which is rather off-putting, and she used to dance in May Day celebrations. May Day is connected in some ways to Morris dancing, as we'll see later. And Elizabeth I also allowed a wrestling match in the Royal Chapel. Her successor, her godson, James I, was a, a fan of bull baiting, and bowling on Sundays. In fact, he commissioned a book of sports, which he brought out in 1618, which basically said what you could do and couldn't do on a Sunday. 
And he liked uh, athletic pursuits. He supported leaping, vaulting, archery and dancing. I thought you could say he supported Leeds. It was probably Patrick Thistle or one of the Scottish <laughs> ones. He was a Scot. But the idea being that the dancing had a very clear run under the Tudors and then the first Stuart. Also, Charles I enjoyed a good Morris dance in the 1630s. This was seen as something quite despicable by the growing Puritan presence in the early to mid-17th century. And there was a time between 1629 and 40 where Charles I didn't call a parliament and it was called the Eleven Years' Rule, or it depends on which side you were on. His enemies called it the Eleven Years' Tyranny. But when he had to call parliament in 1640 to raise some cash to get an army to pull the Scottish out of northern England, one of the first demands from the Puritans was that he had to stop this support of dancing because it was seen as a festivity of debauchery, as particularly the, the Morris dancing itself. The Puritans took a particular aversion to a lot of things. Famously, during Cromwell's time, Christmas was banned, but it was much more widespread than that. Bears that were kept at the Tower of London were shot rather than being bear-baited. And then the Puritans decreed that men never went as yet by multitudes, much less by Morris dancing troops, to heaven. And Morris dancing was seen as a very dangerous process for communities in that it gave a sort of freedom. There's an element of going to gather garlands. Young people would gather garlands in the woods as a prelude to Morris dancing and mm. also the maypole. And that was a time when things could happen between the genders. Steady on. <laughs> yes. So it was a debauchery thing, really. And there was a, a Puritan mantra that heathenish vanity generally abused to superstition and wickedness. That was the definition of, of a May Day Morris dancing and maypole dancing. To some, it was a symbol of a united community, but now it was banned. And in fact, when the Maypole was removed in Canterbury under the Commonwealth with Cromwell in charge, Morris dancers danced in protest outside the mayor's office. I know you like to sneer slightly at these people. I'm but not sneering. <laughs> you're, just, you're sneering at the idea of me having Morris no, dance. I'm not sneering, I just want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so it had a rough time during the Commonwealth and with the Restoration, we know that early in his reign, Charles II, during the Restoration, was accompanied by Morris dancers through the street of London. And it, I suppose it had its heyday really by then. And what really saw it nearly to extinction was the Industrial Revolution, when rural populations moved into urban settings. And it was really on the brink of extinction. And it was all down to an event in 1899. A man called Cecil Sharp was travelling through Headington in Oxford, where Robert Maxwell used to have his palace. And uh, he saw some men dancing in a rhythmic way with ribbons and bells. And they were doing a, a dance called the Laudanum or Laudanum Bunches. And he asked them about this. And it turned out they were very embarrassed to be caught doing this because they were trying to make some money. They were falling on hard times in 1899. And normally they would have done this at Whitsuntide. Whitsun was a time very much associated with Morris dancing. And also, from the 19th century, Whitson was associated very much with the colour white, which is why Morris dancers are generally wearing white tops and white bottoms. But um, Cecil Sharp said, no, no, this is fascinating. And he and other folklorists travelled round England, going to different communities to find out their version of, yes, folklores, but also the Morris dance. And he wrote two books, one in 1907 and one in 1909, 
Sharp's Morris book, parts one and two, I mean, he has taken a few liberties, we think, with the truth. But he basically wrote down all the traditions because they were very different around the place. The things that were common to Morris dancing troops, or jingles, as they're known... Not sides. They can be that, but they're also known as a jingle of Morris dancers, which I think is rather poetic and very manly in its own way. In its own way. (laughs) (laughs) But each club of Morris dancing had a squire who's overall responsible, like the chairman, I suppose, and then a foreman or a captain who teaches the dance and a man called a bagman, going back to your luggage, but a bagman who was basically the secretary and a foreman as well. The foreman was the, the key who kept the dance going. The most common one, the one that I think if you're thinking of Morris dancing right now, would be the Cotswold one, which thrived, as you imagine, in, in Gloucestershire, Oxfordshire, Northamptonshire and Warwickshire. You could have black breeches, but generally white shirt and trousers, bell pads on your shins and a baldric. Do you know what a baldric is? No. No, it's a sort of scabbard for a sword that goes round your shoulder oh. that was used in the medieval warfare. What would you have that for? That ornament. was just that was a, an ornament from the past. Mm. And there is a theory that maybe all of this, the sticks, the bells, the waving of hankies, was to ward off evil spirits. But there's no proof of that. We don't actually really understand an awful lot of the traditions. But they grew up all over the place. You have the border Morris and the Welsh border Morris dancers which obviously not acceptable now, but had painted faces and beribboned clothes, lots of ribbons on them. That's Hereford, Worcestershire and Shropshire. And they wore a rag coat, which is a coat where you sew on tatters as a sort of adornment or a tailcoat. And then the music was a concertina, a melodeon or a tambourine, maybe with fiddles and brass. Fiddles, violins were added later. It was mainly a pipe and a table. I'm not quite sure what a table is. Oh, okay. And the fiddle was added later, which made for a more cohesive sound. But a lot of people found it harder to dance to a fiddle than a pipe or a drum. There's the Northwest Clog Morris group. They're in Cheshire and Lancashire, and their roots are in industrial towns. And their clogs, they have heels and soles with iron in them. They're all to do with military precision. I haven't done that one, if you're asking me. <laughs> And often you'd have a conductor in that one where he'd blow a whistle to keep the military precision going. And then up in Yorkshire, a more militaristic look that was known as the long sword. That one, you link together in a circle with your swords. They're about a metre long without a point or cutting edge. But the high point, the climax of that dance is the formation of a star with interwoven swords. And that interlocked sword motif is the emblem of the English Folk Dance and Song Society, as I'm sure you knew. I did, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the fastest one, you'll enjoy this, is called the rapper. They rapped these Morris dancers. And this was a as I say, a very energetic dance, ideal for small spaces. It can be performed in a pub. Involves somersaults, though, and that's from Durham and Northumberland. Very agile. And then you end up with the Morris dancing today. You have got girls Morris dancing. It's often called Carnival or Fluffy Morris. And it's particularly popular in the Northwest and Wales. And it's, it's competitive. It's particularly popular among primary and secondary school girls. You know, it was for ages seen as a very male pursuit, very working class one connected to the soil, really, and to the seasons. 
it's still popular in that way. The opening words to Terry Pratchett's Reaper Man, his, one of his novels in 1991, starts with the Morris dance is common to all inhabited worlds in the multiverse. It is danced under blue skies to celebrate the quickening of the soil and under bare stars because it's springtime. So there is this big fertility connection. And I wanted to really bring my favourite fact out at that point, which is to do with Plough Monday. So Plough Monday is the first Monday after the Christmas break, and it signals the start of the agricultural year. And basically, it was a very big moment in, in your Morris dancing year. It dates from the late 15th century. It's a, an amalgamation of Morris dancing, maple dancing, all sorts of traditions. And essentially, you took your plowshare to be blessed in church. And then prayers were said for human toil and tools used by humans. And then people would take the plow around asking people for money. And it was very much a sort of version of trick or treat, because if you didn't give the money, then you'd have your front path plowed up. And then always in these setups, you'd have an old woman or perhaps a boy dressed as an old woman. He or she would be called a Bessie and they were accompanied by a, a fool. And this still is done in Malden in Essex. Malden being a familiar name to Cat because there was mm. a Viking victory there in yes. 991. But essentially, I love the fact that you've got this rather unknown roots to a tradition which is seen as the height of Englishness. And in fact, I have to say, at my 50th, which is 10 years ago, I decided to celebrate the ethnicity of my four grandparents. And one was American, one was Irish, one was Scottish, one was English. And I brought a troupe of Morris dancers to the garden at home to perform that most English of performances, the Morris dance. Well, hang on a minute. Mm. So there were the Morris dancers in your garden dancing yes. around. Yes. You'd think, wouldn't you, that... Um, Politeness alone would result in... An I've done it several times. Come on. Yeah, spell. I've done it several times. In the early 90s, I lost my Morris Cherry. I got these men in to perform. Yes. And they were the... I think they were called the Morris Men and Mummers of Moulton. Moulton being a sub-section of Northampton. Yeah. And it was really fun watching them. And then they asked us to join in. And it was a bit... Gee, Richard, you and I are of an age where Morris dancing was hilariously ridiculous wasn't it and it would be the two ronnies who were a very big comedy act in the 70s and 80s they yeah. would do a skit on it the generation game which was another huge tv thing they would do it with people seen as something that was mocked by urbane populations living in towns and cities yes. a sort of relic of the past yes. and, and kind of clumsy and gauche and clumsy gauche and camp which is a very unusual combination, really. And oh, I think I it's the bells. Because <laughs> <laughs> I should look away when I say that. Um, but the, it was the combination. I mean, I have to say, I didn't take it remotely seriously. It was great fun to do. But people practice really hard, and it means an enormous amount to them. But mm. you hate dancing. I do, but it's not really dancing. Oh, it's like line like... dancing. It's so structured. Yeah. So what is it you like? I don't know. There's some, well, I wouldn't. I haven't done it very often. I would say there's something wonderfully traditional and English about it. That's yeah. that's nice. So it's merry England. It's merry England, yeah. and I love the eccentricity of these people taking it really seriously. It's rather heartwarming, and doing it in the face of a lot of criticism and laughter. 
I haven't done it that much. No one has done it at all. I should think I've done it three times in my life. That makes you a Morris dancer. Yes, child. a bit of a veteran. <laughs> yes, I think it does. Well, my third me, name yeah. is Morris, but that isn't a prerequisite. <laughs> <laughs> Morris, isn't it? Until I, I know about Cecil Sharp, because oh, yes. it's one of the venues that you use for rehearsals in Strictly Come Dancing. So you would be there trying to do the Paso Doble, surrounded by very serious Morris dancers who would look through the door and you could see their disapproval would register on their faces mm. that you were somehow defiling yes, this place earth. that was sacred to you know the oh, english yes. morris by doing a paso doble badly or something but you know yes imagine being judged by a morris dancer <laughs> because normally the morris dancers are the ones being judged yes. so maybe that's their chance to get some revenge on the world yeah and you've got to be careful i mean you are wielding sticks and you're tapping quite you know you've got to look yes. after each other's fists and i'm pretty sure there's this powerful link to fecundity mm. and i think that's probably why the puritans hated it there's a thing mm. baptist mm. strict particular baptist as a joke saying is why do they discourage the missionary position in coitus because it might encourage dancing <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is something isn't there about yes. physicality and about the green fuse and about sap mm. rising Can't control it yes and body fluids happening in and whitson is spring isn't it yeah it's may yeah. and um also about renewal, I think. So in the north, yes. the wit walks, the custom, up until in living memory, was that people would put on new clothes. Kids would get new clothes, and you'd walk around the town for the wit walks. Mm, there we go. But we have to get to the important part of mm. this, the reason why we're all here today, which is really that this is the end of season three. Critical one, Although season it? four starts very well, soon. Well, yeah, I should say, I should say, <laughs> season four does go straight on next week. So don't worry, listeners, we, we will be back but there's obviously the scores. So obviously this is a really important point because we need to know how we've scored coming up to this point. It's been a bit sort of neck and neck. It is it? quite neck and neck still. So if we're going from the first ever episode in series one, Charles has won 16, Richard has also won 16 and Kat, you've won 15. <gasps> if we're going from just this series alone, Richard and Kat, you're both on six and Charles is on seven. So Jesus, are we crowning the winner based on the series? I don't know. You're the boss. Yeah. I think we are. Let's crown based on the series. So technically it's all still to play for. Because there could be a tie. Well, okay. Well, no, not on. really. But play for, for some. I'm just building the tension. <laughs> but I think, I mean, how can you compete with the image of Charles Morris dancing? Well, I think that's probably right. Well, so. It, was it worth it? This is what I call a Pyrrhic victory. <laughs> <laughs> So both taking the win this week and taking the series win overall, it's Charles. There you well, go. I can't, I can't agree with that. But well there we are. Done. I'll take it. Well I'll take done. it with shame because Richard should have won that. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. Very good. The you Morris dancing is so counterintuitive. <laughs> Kat, if yes. you had owned up to the Norwegian country dancing that you did for years, that could have been your victory. It could have been, couldn't it? I would oh. have to lie though, and they don't lie in Scandinavia. No, just my middle name, but <laughs> literally. <laughs> yes. Well, bravo, Charles. Yes. Well, well done. You could do a victory lap with your jingling bells. Well, he's going like. to he's going to come dressed in the outfit next week. <laughs> yes. Have you got an outfit? No, I can't. Well, he will do. He will do three times. Once yeah. is, you know, mistake. Twice is <laughs> suspicious and three times is commitment. Yeah. Well done. Yes. Congratulations. Very good. I'd crack your knuckles if I was dancing with you, just saying. <laughs> Thank you. Would you sort of stick with the parts? I would, in the I would wax puritanical and ban you. 
We could do the long sword one where we all, that sounds quite sort of camp, doesn't it? We the interlocking, the sword, interlocking sword so <laughs> yes. we look like a star. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, as we said, this is the last episode of season three, but we're not taking a break, so we'll be right back next week, starting season four. Yay. So, brand new topics coming up. Richard, you've talked about this before. Madeira wine yes. is going to be yours. Good. And Charles, you'll have to inform me who this is. Werner, I'm going to say. Werner von Braun. <laughs> well, you're, you're going to be covering Werner von Braun. Yes. And who is he? Yes, that's right. <laughs> See, it's a secret. <laughs> or who he is. Yes, okay. And I'm going to be talking about the hawthorn tree. Ooh. So, good research to go back uh, Perfect subject for each of us. Yeah. And of course, we've got that and we've got to sort up for our live show, which is coming up on the 10th of February in Northampton. So if people want to join us, we'd love to see all our listeners at the show. Charles will be doing some Morris dancing. Yes, he's going to be <laughs> Morris dancing. Well, I could bring them on. You could no, do. No, 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 the no local you've got troop. to do it. Come on. Well, I can't do it by myself. Yes, you can. I could bring the molten man in. We'll be right yes. behind you. <laughs> you go first. Just don't turn around, Charles. <laughs> So this is this is what you can come and come and join us. See, I've got an accordion. I'll bring the accordion. Oh. You can dance. Shall I wear my boonad? Wear your boonad. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got your boonad? It's in Norway. Well, we're wondering what I'll we're going to do it. in part two, and that's it, isn't it? There'll be part one. We'll record a podcast, and part two we'll yes. show and tell. Is there a special bag for a boonad? There isn't, but there should be, shouldn't there? The Louis Vuitton Boonard bag. Yes. I should commission one, shouldn't I? Yes. Definitely. Do you know how much a Louis Vuitton specially commissioned trunk is? Is it like five? About 40,000 quid. Oh, 40, okay. I was going to find it. goodness. And some yeah. of the, the most splendid ones, one went to auction for, I think it's about $400,000. But, I mean, 40, I think they start at 36,000 quid for a bespoke trunk. Okay, so my Boonard one's going to be quite a lot, isn't it? I better start saving. Well, obviously, once we've monetised this podcast, we'll, we'll all get one. Yes. Charles can have his Morris dancing kit in it. <laughs> I can have my Madeira wine. Yes. Yes. Perfect. What else is that? <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll see you all there at the show and we'll um, practice yes. our dancing. Gosh. So that's it for this week. And thank you to everyone, as always, for listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review because it helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. The email address is rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, I wish I hadn't cried so much. Oh. Well, that's, that's not a nice way to end this show, is it? But <laughs> goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you.